Let's pray. Lord, we ask today that you would be the teacher. You tell us that the Holy Spirit is the teacher. He gives us an anointing. We pray he would come and instruct, Lord, and help us to see truth. Help us to catch a glimpse of the passion of Christ so that that could be part of our life, that we would follow in our master's steps. So Lord, come and minister today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to begin a new sermon series today. I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, I think it'll take at least eight weeks. It could go longer just depending on how the studies go. And the series is going to be on the church. I've entitled it A Passion for the Church. And this first one's not going to be real easy. I think once I get through my introduction, it'll be fine. But I need to talk to you real honestly and upfront about the state of our church. I uh, said, well, Brian, why would you want to do a sermon series on the church? Well, for two real simple reasons. Number one, I believe it is the will of God for every Christian to passionately be committed to a local church. Number two, I don't see that kind of passion in our church. So that's why we're going to do the sermon series, because we need to see what God's word says about the church and about church life. And let me just say at the outset, I hope you won't be offended by my analysis I'm just trying to tell you as honestly as I can what I'm seeing, and I have to take responsibility for a lot of the things I'm going to tell you, because perhaps I haven't led the way I should have led. Maybe I haven't been reminding you of God's word often enough. So I, I do take responsibility for some of the things I'm going to say. But let me just share with you why I think it's important for us to do a series at this time. Um, let's just talk about Sunday morning attendance for a minute. Look around. <laughs> There is a spirit in, a, in America, in American evangelicalism, that, you know, the church is all about meeting my needs. And I go when I feel like it, and I don't go when I don't feel like it. And in our church, I see that spirit. Not, and it, please understand me, it's not all of you. Some of you are very faithful. In fact, the ones that are here today are probably the ones that don't need to hear what I'm, what I'm trying to teach. Some of you are very faithful, and you serve when you come. That's awesome. But there are others that don't, that they don't understand the nature of being part of a local church and what the biblical nature of a local church is all about. So Sunday morning attendance, sort of hit and miss, and a lot of folks, when they come, they habitually just come in late. There, it shows there's a lack of passion for the church when you're not anxious to be there when you start. And you're not anxious to be there every Sunday, if at all possible. So number two... When I look at our missional communities, I, I see that something has gone awry. And this is probably the area where I need to take most responsibility. On our website, this is what it says. Missional communities are the life and soul of this church. They are not merely an arm of the church. They are the church. To be a member of the bridge means that you will be a committed member of a missional community. Well, that's not happening, folks. <laughs> that, you know, that's what did happen when we first started. Those of you who are here three and a half years ago, you know that every single person that was part of a church was part of a missional community, and we were committed to it, and we shared that vision, and we owned it. Well, that's not the state of our church any longer. I think there's seven or eight adults that are involved in the one missional community that is going at this point. It's just sort of fallen apart. So we need to ask ourselves, 
is the original vision from God? Does he want us to be involved in each other's lives during the week, not just on an hour and a half meeting on a Sunday? Does he want us interacting with each other, loving each other, getting to know each other, praying for each other, studying scripture together, fellowshipping and on mission together in Rancho Cordova? And if that is God's will, then we need to recommit to that and find a way to do that. Make a way to do that. Number three, uh, we have a monthly prayer and fasting that we do. Sometimes we don't make it every month, but we try to. And so it's a day when the whole church sets aside a Saturday to pray and fast. We come together to pray, and then we do some kind of an outreach together where we go and talk to people about the Lord. Then we come back and we cap it all off with a great time of fellowship and sharing a meal. But, but that is not attended very well as either. May, probably half or less than half of the folks that would attend on a Sunday are part of that as well. It just tells me there are some indicators that something's not right. There's a sickness or a weakness in the body. Um, giving. This is the most awkward for me to talk about, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's important for you to understand. Um, and I need you to understand, I'm not scolding here today. I'm trying to help you see why I might be concerned as a shepherd. Okay, that's really what this is all about. And how we can get from this place to a greater place of strength and vitality and health. But our giving. Um, Judy, my mother-in-law, has been handling the finances, but she's been very ill over the last six months, and so she hasn't been able to do that. And she always sends out a letter every year to the givers of the congregation, letting them know how much they gave. But she was so tired and so weak, she couldn't do it. So I said, someone's got to do it. Let me just step in and do it this year. But when I did that, I was shocked. I had no idea. There's nobody that gives by check that is consistently or regularly giving in this church except for one family, which happens to be ours. There's nobody. And there's lots of people that never give anything. Now, something's really wrong with that picture. On top of that... Our family gives 75% of the total support of the entire church, just one family. So when I thought about that, Lord, what's, we're not sharing the load. It's not distributed amongst the body like a healthy church would. We need to think about that. Why is that happening? And we need to see, what, what does God want me to do to change that? So this morning, what I want to do is to Direct your attention to the passion of Jesus Christ for his church. Maybe you've never thought about that. Perhaps in thinking about it, it's going to do something within you and strike a chord. Or get inside your heart and cause you to want to be like Christ and want to have the same passion that he has. So that's why we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32. And we're going to see seven demonstrations of Christ's passion for his church. Number one, Jesus Christ loved the church. It says in verse 25 that Christ also loved the church. Now, he begins by saying, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. So what does that tell us about Jesus' relationship to his church? Well, it's like the relationship of a husband to a wife, isn't it? That's why we say that the, that the church is the bride of Christ. And this isn't the only place that tells us that. If you were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
verse 2, verse 2, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So Paul is talking to the church, and he says, I took you, church, and I betrothed you to Christ, to one husband, who is Jesus Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now notice he says, I betrothed you. If you were to go back in history to the first century and look at the way the Jews handled getting married, they didn't have engagements like we do. They had betrothals. And when someone was betrothed to somebody else, they were legally married. In fact, they couldn't just break up and walk away. They had to get a bill of divorce, even though they had never consummated that relationship. It might have been that their actual wedding was a year down the road. But if they wanted to break up, they just couldn't do it. They had to get a legal bill of divorce. Paul says that the church has been betrothed to Christ. We're legally married to Jesus. But the consummation hasn't happened yet. When's that going to happen? When he returns. When Christ returns, there is going to be the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But right now, yes, we are the legally married bride of Christ. We're betrothed to one husband. Now, here in Ephesians, it says that Christ loved the church. Did you notice that's in the past tense? He loved. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is, well, when did Christ love the church? When did he begin to love the church? When did he first love the church? Okay, go with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at several passages. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Now here, the prophet is prophesying about the remnant of Israel. But because the church is the remnant of Israel, we are the true Israel, the new Israel of the new covenant, this has direct application for us today. And here we go. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. We didn't go far enough. Whoops, we got the wrong one. Here it is. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So when did God begin to love the remnant of Israel, according to this passage? From everlasting. In other words, you, you can't go back and, and, and look at a date. It's before time began. Before time began, with an everlasting love. And this everlasting love was the reason that he drew those people, with the cords of loving kindness, he drew them to their Savior. So first he loved them with this everlasting love, and then he drew them to God their Savior. Now, in the New Testament, we also have some indications of when this love of Christ began for his bride, the passion of his heart. So Romans 9 tells us some more. In Romans 9, verse 13... It says, this is, these are God's words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, well, when did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Back up two verses to verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and hadn't done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What's the answer from this passage about when Jesus began to love his church? Before they were born. Before they'd done anything. They hadn't committed any sins yet. Okay, let's look at another one. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. I want you to notice a couple things here. Paul is saying, We ought to be giving thanks for you. Well, why? Because God loves you. Wait a minute, doesn't God love everybody? Evidently not. Not in the same way. Because Paul says we ought to be just thanking God because He loves you. Well, how do we know if God loves a person in that special way? Let's keep reading. Because God has chosen you from the beginning. When did God chose them? From the beginning. From everlasting. And what did He choose them for? Did He choose them for service? No, it's for salvation. You see, God's love is connected to his choice of particular individuals for salvation. Do you see it there in the passage? If you're beloved by the Lord, that means that he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That salvation takes place in your life through the sanctification by the Spirit, which is another way of talking about regeneration. He sets you apart. The Holy Spirit sets you apart from sin to Christ by creating a new heart within you. That's sanctification by the Spirit. And resulting from that regeneration, that new heart, faith in the truth. Faith is birthed from this new heart that God gives. So, Christ loved the church. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I, I'm tracking with you, Brian, but there's that verse that always troubles me from Romans chapter 8, which says that, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now that sounds to me like God just knew in advance who was going to believe in Christ. And then he said, okay, I guess I'll choose you because you are going to choose me. But we have to understand what foreknowledge means. Um, to know somebody in Scripture. What's, what's that all about? To know somebody. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 4 when it says Adam knew his wife Eve? What's it talking about? It's talking about sexual intimacy. The intimacy of the greatest kind between two human beings. It's talking about love and intimacy between people. In Amos 3 verse 2, God says, You only of all the families of the earth have I known. Does that mean that God didn't know anything about the Jebusites or the Canaanites or the Perizzites? It means he hadn't chosen anyone else other than Israel. In fact, if you look at your Bibles, it probably doesn't use the word no. That's the King James way of expressing it. It says, you only of all the families of the earth have I chosen. Because they understand that to know in that sense means to choose. So when it says God's foreknowledge, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's meaning for whom he set his love on from everlasting. He had a prior determination to love those of the people that he's conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what foreknowledge means. It means to forelove someone. Previously, you have made a decision, a purpose, to set your special, discriminating, sovereign, effectual love on a group of people. That's foreknowledge.
Now, we have to understand that Christ's love for his church is not the same as his love for the world. Well, does that mean that Christ does not love the world at all? No. Remember our John 3.16 series? At least we know that God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is a love of God for the world, and that love of God caused him to send a Savior who is available to the world, suitable for the people of the world, sufficient to save the people of the world. It's there. Though they don't want it, it's still there. And a sincere and real offer of salvation is going out to all the world. Yes, Christ does love the world, but he doesn't love the world like he loves the church. It's different. Okay, brothers. I want your brothers to think with me for a minute. Is it the will of God that you love every woman in the world? Yes or no? No. You say no? Is that the only answer we've got? <laughs> what, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Aren't we supposed to love all men? Well, women are mankind, aren't they? Wouldn't? Now, you, I know what you're saying, John. You're saying we shouldn't love them in the same way we would love a, a wife. Is that what you mean? Okay, I agree. But we ought to love all people, including all women on the planet, right? But if you told your wife, brothers, if you told her, you know, honey, I love every other woman in this world in exactly the same way as I love you, how do you think she's going to feel? Out of the bed. <laughs> You're on the couch. <laughs> you know, that's not going to fly, is it? Christ's love for his bride is not the same as his love for the rest of the world. It's different. It's special. It's sovereign. It's from everlasting. It's omnipotent. It's effectual. It's a love that fixes upon a particular group of people and is saving in its intent, and it will not fail. So, Christ's passion for the church is seen in that he loved the church. He loved the church. He loved the church in a way he didn't love anybody else in this world. Especially. Number two. He gave himself for the church. Just keep reading. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up. For who? Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does it mean that Christ gave himself up for the church? Well, it's talking about his sacrifice, isn't it? The sacrifice on the cross. His bride was under the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. And she was being swept away to judgment. And Christ loved her enough to do what was necessary to rescue her and to save her from where she was headed. It's like a, a woman who's being taken captive. Uh, a, a captive in war, and she's being hauled off. And if you've read what the Assyrians used to do to the nations that they would engage in warfare, you know, the women, they would take them and they would rape them. They would use them like animals or like slaves. And Here is the bride of Christ being taken away to judgment and wrath, and Jesus Christ steps in and does whatever is necessary for him to save and to rescue that bride. Let's look at some scriptures that speak about Christ giving himself and see what they say. Galatians 1 verse 4. It says that Christ 
gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So Christ gave himself for our sins. It's talking about the cross. And the purpose? To rescue us out of this evil age. Okay? Go over a few pages to Ephesians 5, verse 2. Same chapter that we started in. Ephesians 5, 2. Well, let's start in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So here again, Christ gives, him, gives himself up. He's doing that in a sacrificial death. The purpose, two purposes, he's doing it for us, but he's also doing it to God at the same time. Did you see that? This is an, a sacrifice, an oblation, an offering given for the glory of his Father, but it's also on behalf of us, his people, his church. Okay, one final one, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now here we have it again. He gave himself up. For what purpose? To redeem. That means to, to rescue out of a state of slavery. Or to buy back someone who has been purchased and taken away. So it, it means to be ransomed. You've all seen the movies, haven't you? When someone pays a ransom and their little child who was kidnapped is given back to them. They have to give a million dollars. and Okay, that's what it's talking about. They're ransomed. Jesus gave himself for us to ransom or redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So Jesus Christ not only loved his church, but he gave himself up for his church. Now here's a question I want you to ponder. Did Jesus do exactly the same thing for the church in his death that he did for the rest of the world? This is a theological question that you need to think about. Maybe you've never thought about that, you know? Let's think about it right now. Did he do exactly the same thing for those that end up in hell as for those who end up in heaven? Well, one school of theology today said, yes, it was exactly the same. You and I make the difference. We decide if we're going to take the benefit of what Christ did on the cross or not. It's all up to us. In theology, that's called the Arminian school of theology. Okay? There is another school of theology called Reformed or Calvinistic. And they believe that the death of Christ was limited in its intent to the elect or the church. Now, which one's true? Did Christ die equally for every man? Or did he die in a special way for the church? Well, there are verses on both sides. And so... What that has done for me is I've had to come to a theology that I can live with that's biblical. And so I'd say I see two aspects in the death of Christ. There is a particular aspect and there is a universal aspect. Let's start with the universal. What does scripture say about the death of Christ? 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ died as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. 
Yeah, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Did you see the distinction? Yeah, he's the Savior of all, but especially of believers. He's the ransom for all men. He's the Savior of all men. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now you see what that, that verse is teaching? These false teachers are headed for hell. They're bringing destruction upon themselves, but it also says that their master bought them. So here we have find people that end up in hell, but still the cross has done something for them. It bought them. Even though they don't end up in heaven, there was something provided for them at the cross. So I'm calling this the universal aspect of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a salvation sufficient for every person who's ever lived on this globe because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But that's not the whole story. Because if you keep reading your Bible, you're going to find a whole other set of texts of Scripture. And let me give you some of those. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. For many. Not all. For many. John 10, 11. He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? The sheep. And then in the same chapter, verse 27, he says, The sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish. So the sheep are the ones that end up saved in heaven. Jesus gave his life for the sheep. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And all of these texts, including Ephesians 5.25, you see the particularity of the intention of the cross. Let me read Ephesians 5.25. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's two things going on. It's like a guy with an elephant gun. But he's not shooting at an elephant. He can kill an elephant with that gun. It's so powerful. But he's shooting at a mouse. God could have saved the entire world by the death of Christ, but he wasn't aiming at the entire world. He's aiming at his church, his elect, the many, the flock, the sheep, this group of people that we find scattered throughout the New Testament, the chosen ones. He's aiming that cross at them. So it would be like this. It would be like if my family were shut up in a prison, held captive, and I wanted to, to bust him out of prison. And so I take some dynamite and I throw it into that prison and it blows this great big wall, this hole through the wall. And so now they're able to come out of that prison and go free. But the very same hole that I blew in that wall to get my family out is also sufficient for anybody else that's in that prison to come out too. I didn't have to blow another wall I mean, another hole in the wall to get the rest of the prisoners out, did I? The very same thing I did to get my family is able, it's sufficient for anybody in that prison to come out at the same time. Now, do you see the parallel? 
Christ in his death did something so powerful that it could save anyone, but he wasn't aiming at everybody. He was aiming at a particular group of people. It was the people that he loved from the foundation of the world and he chose to be saved. Let me put it this way for you, and this has helped me. Think carefully about these words. Christ in his death could do no less to save any, but he need do no more to save all. Think about that. Christ in his death could do no less to save any. In other words, if there is one person that he intended to save, Jesus still would have had to die because the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die for my crime, even if I'm the only one on the planet. But he didn't have to do anything more than that one solitary death to save everyone. In other words, the cross is sufficient for all. It's efficient for his chosen people. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus did some things for all men, but he did all things for some men. He did some things for all men. What did he do? He provided a salvation sufficient for them if they would come and avail themselves of it. What's the problem? They aren't coming. Nobody's coming. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. So for some, Jesus included a little extra in what he did there at the cross. He purchased not just forgiveness of sins, but the power of the Holy Spirit to cause them to receive the forgiveness of sins because they had no inclination, no desire to come and receive. And so included in the purchase price of the cross was the work of the Holy Spirit who comes into the life of the elect and regenerates them and gives them a new heart so that they see the glory of Christ and they come running to him. I hope this isn't too deep this morning. <laughs> in other words, you could say it like this. Christ in his death has made salvation possible for all, but certain for the elect. He secured the reception of salvation amongst his church. And notice that his giving himself for the church is different then than his giving himself for the world. Do you start to see the passion that Jesus has to obtain and to get his church for himself? He's going to have her. Nothing will stand in his way. He's after that bride. And he's going to woo her by love, a love so strong that it's irresistible, and she will come. Number three, Jesus demonstrates his passion for the church by loving the church, by giving himself for the church. Number three, by sanctifying the church. Look at verse 26. So that. So this is telling us a purpose. Why did Jesus love and give himself for the church? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So, at the cross, we see the penalty of sin erased. But not only does Jesus simply erase the penalty of sin through what he did at the cross, but he also breaks the power of indwelling sin. It's through his cross work and through the work of the Holy Spirit that the power of sin is broken so that we can start to become holy men and women of God. We don't always have to live at this low, dying, sinful rate. We can make progress in overcoming sin and becoming holy. See, the cross brings a covering of righteousness. It covers our sin. 
But Christ not only covers your sin, he starts to make you actually righteous. He covers you with righteousness, and then he starts to make you practically righteous. And so what we're talking here about the two doctrines of justification and sanctification. Justification, God declares you righteous. You say, well, well Lord, I'm not. I still sin, but I declare you righteous because of what my son has done in your place. His righteousness is yours. You're justified. But see, justified is completely different than sanctified. But they always go together. You will never find someone who's been justified who isn't being sanctified. And you'll never find someone who's being sanctified who wasn't already justified. They always go together, although you separate them. They're not the same thing. So justification, God declares you righteous for Christ's sake. Sanctification, he starts making you righteous by killing sin in your life and causing the fruits of holiness to pour forth from your life. So that's what he's talking about here, sanctification. Not only did Christ love and give himself for the church, but he goes on to sanctify the church, make the church really holy. And how does he do it? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You see, even after we're saved and all our sins are forgiven, we're still dirty. Our feet are still dirty. They need to be washed. And how does that washing take place? The Word of God. It's the washing of water with the Word. Do you remember in John chapter 13 when Jesus took a, a basin of water and a towel around his waist and he went and started to wash his disciples' feet? And he got to Peter and Peter said, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And what does the Lord say? It's Peter, if unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter says, well, then wash my head and my hands too. <laughs> Peter was all or nothing. You know, <laughs> my head and my hands too. And Jesus responds and he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Now there's something deep going on under the surface here. Jesus was talking about someone being bathed and being completely clean. That's justification. That's a person believing on Christ and all their sins are forgiven. They, they're bathed. They're washed in the blood of Christ. All their sins are gone. But he, Jesus recognizes that even though we've been justified, we still have contact with this evil world, our feet. Remember, they wear sandals, and they get their feet dirty just walking around in the world. We have to touch base with this world that's evil every day, and we get contaminated and polluted from sin. And so Jesus tells them, you just need your feet to be washed every once in a while. You don't need another bath. Once you've been saved, you don't have to get saved all over again. You're saved once forever. But you do need your feet cleansed by Jesus. And so what we need to do is sit down, prop our feet up into the hands of Jesus and say, Lord, would you just cleanse these dirty feet because I've sinned. I've been in contact with this evil world. And it's polluted my thinking. It's polluted my actions. I need you to wash my feet again, Lord. What did Jesus say in John 15, 3? You are already clean because of what? The Word. <coughs> Because of the word which I've spoken to you. The word of God is a cleansing agent in the hands of Jesus Christ. Or John 17, 17. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, brothers and sisters, how are we going to become holy people? According to that prayer that Jesus offered. It's going to be through the word of God. That's why it is so essential that you you take time to read 
and study and memorize and meditate and hear the Word of God as much as you can regularly and consistently. That's why it's important for you to come here in church on Sunday and hear the Word of God preached. And that's why it's important for you on Monday morning to open your Bible and let that Word cleanse you of sin. Let it expose the sin in your life so that you can repent and receive continual parental forgiveness from God. So this is how sanctification takes place. It's like the manna that the children of Israel ate in the wilderness every day. It fell down. They couldn't store it up for more than one day at a time. The Word of God is like that. We are to eat it every day. And we're not to try to store it up on Sunday. You know, I'll just have a, this great sermon and that's going to be enough for seven days. It doesn't work like that. W would you do that in your own? I mean, would you gorge yourself seven meals on Sunday and say, well, I'm going to be fasting the rest of the week. I just need to get full. I mean, nobody does that, right? <laughs> So, sanctification comes through the truth of the Word of God. Number four, how does Jesus demonstrate a passion for the church? He will glorify the church. Let's keep reading in our text. Verse 27 says, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So we've seen... Christ loved the church. What is that? That's election. Christ gave himself for the church. What's that? Justification. Christ cleanses the church. What is that? Sanctification. Christ presents the church to himself in all her glory. What is that? It's glorification. Paul is just outlining the great doctrines and great truths of Scripture and showing that Christ passionately is going to accomplish all of this for the church. Her election, her justification, her sanctification, and her glorification. Now, what do we mean? What do we mean by glorification? We mean that one day the church is going to be presented to Christ perfect. And that she, her, her mortal body is going to be changed into a perfect mortal body without sin. It'll be like Christ's body that was transformed in the resurrection that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, notice, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So here we have Jesus Christ beautifying the church for that wedding day that's coming around the corner when Christ returns. Right now, he's beautifying his church. You see, Jesus didn't find a gorgeous babe. The church was not a gorgeous babe. The church was an ugly duckling. He found this ugly duckling and he said, what can I do with this? <laughs> this is going to be my wife? Well, I've got to do something to make her pretty. I've got <laughs> so right now, he's doing that. Now, when a, when a woman walks down that aisle to be married, she doesn't want to have food stains all over her white dress, does she? And she doesn't want all these wrinkles everywhere. Jesus right now is in the process of removing all of those spots and all of the stains from the wedding dress, getting rid of all the wrinkles, so that when we walk down the aisle, as it were, when Christ returns, we're a glorious church. Glorious. And this is the, the goal, the end for which Christ has been working for thousands of years. This is the end goal of everything He's been doing. He is 
getting a church for himself and uniting himself to that church in marriage forever. John Stott put it like this. On earth, she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. So right now, Jesus is working in each one of his church members around the world, the universal church, making that person beautiful. And when it's time, we are going to be a glorious bride. We'll be presented to him in all of our glory. Well, it's not really ours. It's the glory that he's given to us, isn't it? Notice back in Ephesians 1, verse 4. Because those words, holy and blameless, that's his goal, to make the church holy and blameless, they come up again in Ephesians 1, 4. It says there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Isn't that what we just got done reading about? Why did God choose you, folks? His end, his goal was that you would be holy and blameless forever in his presence. His goal was to present you to himself a glorious, beautiful, lovely bride that he just adores and is going to lavish his love on for all eternity. Not only did he choose us to make us holy and blameless, Colossians 1.22 says that was the effect of the cross. Colossians 1.22 says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He chose you before the foundation of the world to make you holy and blameless before him. He died for you on the cross to make you holy and blameless before him. He is sanctifying you to make you holy and blameless before him. And he will glorify you to make you holy and blameless before him. This is where all history is moving. This is what God is doing in the world. He has a special object of his affections, the church, and he is working to present her to himself glorious. That's the big picture of the Bible. Now, let's talk about three more, and we're going to go quicker with the last three. And you're probably saying, praise the Lord, because <laughs> we're going to be here all day if we don't. Okay, we are, though. Three more. Number five, he nourishes the church. Go down with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Here we're told that Christ nourishes the church. Now, what it, how do you nourish something? Let's talk about a plant. If you want to nourish that plant, well, you take it out of the shadow and you put it in the sunlight, don't you? And you give it some water and maybe a little bit of good potting soil you mix in with it. You give it everything it needs to thrive and have life. Or what if you wanted to nourish a child? Well, you give them healthy meals and make sure they're drinking plenty of water and they're getting their exercise and they're getting plenty of sunshine and fresh air, right? Well, when the Bible says that Christ nourishes the church, it's saying the same thing. He gives the church everything it needs to thrive. Now, we were told that back in Ephesians 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How many spiritual blessings, church, do you have? Every one. Every single one. 2 Peter 1.3. Oh, here it is. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Lord hasn't left out anything that is essential for you to thrive in this spiritual life. He's given to you everything you need for life and godliness. Every spiritual blessing. In fact, he said in John chapter 10 that he's given us life and life more abundantly. He has poured out upon his church everything we need. He's nourishing the church even right now. He's not doing that for the rest of the world. He is doing it for his church. Number six, Christ shows his passion for the church by cherishing the church. Now, what does it mean to cherish something? You know this, don't you? If you cherish something, what do you do to it? Yeah, you love it. You treat it as precious and valuable. What would you do, what would I do, if I owned a Stradivarius violin? Well, number one, I'd get that thing insured for a couple, three million dollars. I make sure I kept it in its hard shell case. I wouldn't just keep it on the kitchen table where the kids can come and whop on it with the table, right? I'd keep it in a case and I might even put it in a safe and lock it up because it is so valuable. Or what if I owned one of Leo da, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's paintings? I'd probably put that thing in a glass case with a lock on it so that nobody could ever touch it. It could never fall off the wall, right? You, you treat it as special. You treat it because it's precious to you, because of its high value. Well, here's the interesting thing. Christ treats us as precious. But when he found us, we were worthless. Where did our preciousness come from? Where did this value come from by which he treats us? Himself. It's because of his choice, his death for us, his sanctifying work, his purpose to glorify us, his nourishing us, that he regards us as precious because we have been chosen to be the object of his lavish affections. And so he regards the church as precious. Now that's almost too hard to believe. But you need to tell yourself that. I'm part of the church. And Christ not only nourishes, but cherishes his church. He cherishes me. I'm precious in his sight. In fact, Isaiah, I think it's 43, says that Israel was precious in his sight. Well, the church, if Israel was precious in his sight, certainly the church is precious in his sight. Now, when you have something that's precious, you do whatever is necessary to protect it. And Christ will protect his church. That's why he said that I give eternal life to my sheep and they're never going to perish and I'm not going to let anybody ever snatch them out of my hand. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're part of the church, he's going to protect you. Satan may come at you with all his might. God will protect you. God will fight for you. God is on your side because he's passionate about you, because he's passionate about the church that you belong to. And then number seven, 
Going back to Ephesians 5. Christ demonstrates his passion for the church by uniting himself forever to the church. Let's take a look at that. Verse 30. It says, Because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, when Paul was writing Ephesians, it's not as though Paul said, okay, I need something to illustrate marriage between a man and a woman. Maybe, what can I, what can I get to illustrate? Oh, I know, the love that Jesus has for the church. That's not how it worked. God created marriage to be an illustration of his love for his bride. So go back to the Garden of Eden. God creates marriage there because he knows that he has a bride that he will marry, and this is a way that he can help the whole world understand his love for his bride. And what kind of a union takes place between Christ and the church? Well, it's like the husband and the wife coming together and becoming one flesh. Only it's not one flesh with the Lord, it's one spirit with the Lord. And he says here, we're members of his body. How much more united can something be than to be a member of a body, like my finger? It's stuck to me, it's part of me, I, I can't get rid of it, you know, it's, we're one, we're joined. Well, that's the kind of union that takes place between Christ and his church. It's like the union of a head to the body, or the vine to the branches, or the cornerstone to the living stones built upon that cornerstone. And in order for Jesus to be joined to or to be united to his church, he had to become one of us. He had to become a man. But think about this. How long did Jesus decide that he would become a man? Was it for 33 years? Does Jesus still have a human nature today in heaven? Yes, he does. A resurrected human nature. He has been eternally united to humanity because he couldn't unite himself to us unless he became one of us. So he became one of us forever. It's like you deciding that you are going to save a bunch of worms. But the only way you can do it is to become a worm so you can communicate to the worms and die for the worms. Jesus became a worm forever. Not for 33 years. He shares our nature and he will share it for all eternity. He unites himself forever to the church. Folks, this is passion. This is the passion of the greatest kind. And I want you to see that passion today. The Lord loved the church, gave himself for the church, sanctifies the church, will glorify the church, nourishes the church, cherishes the church, and united himself forever to the church. Josh Harris put it this way in one of his books, The Church Matters. He says it this way, Even if you've never studied the Bible, you've heard the echoes of this amazing love throughout your life. Every true love story has hinted at it. Every love song has pointed to it. Every groom weakened at the side of his radiant bride has whispered of it. Every faithful, committed, and loving marriage has pointed to it. 
Each is an imperfect echo of the perfect love song of heaven. So if you like love stories or love songs, you need to look at this one because it's the greatest. It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate. So my question for you today, here's the, here's the application if you're wondering. Are you passionate for the church? Do you share Jesus' commitment to the church, his love for the church, and his passion to the church? Is that true about you? Isn't it true that we need to love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates? Aren't we told to imitate God as beloved children? Aren't we told that we are being conformed to the image of Christ? And so part of that is having His loves as part of us? So here's my conviction. I believe it is the will of God for every Christian to have a passionate, committed love for a local church. I believe that's true to Scripture. And if that's not where we're at now, we need to say, okay, Lord, if that's true, help me to get to that place. That's what this whole sermon series is about. I'm wanting to motivate and inspire you to have the same kind of passionate, committed love for a local church that Jesus does. And I think for some of us, it's time to assume the responsibilities of healthy membership in a local church. To assume them. Because we are part of His universal church. But being part of a universal church doesn't mean anything regarding to any local church. That's where we live out our Christianity. In real life situations with real people that we have to learn to love. That's why local churches exist. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's gear up for the next several weeks and let's let the Lord speak to us through His Word about the importance of the local church and what our role is to be in that. And let's not resist that. Let's go along with Christ and let Him sanctify us in this process. Let's pray. I do ask, Father, that You would bless the teaching of Your Word today. Lord, those things that came from my lips that are true, strike them home, Lord, to every heart. And if I've said anything that's untrue, just cause it to vanish, be it forgotten. We want above all, Lord, your word and your truth, that we can walk in your truth. We pray for this local congregation, Lord, that it would be and become everything you want it to be. And if there are hindrances, please remove them. If it's us, change us. Let us be a church to the glory of Christ. In his name, amen.